Hi, my name is Elizabeth. And I'm Sabrina. And this is the Based Based on Podcast. Hello, Sabrina. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome back to this recording again. To my couch. Yes. Well, I'm not in a couch, but anyway, whatever. People aren't here for that. They're here for me. (laughs) I mean, us or whatever. Anyway. Well, this is your episode, so for you, technically. Okay, well, they're all about me, but we'll move on from that. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So we are re-recording this introduction because we had some technical difficulties. Shocking. We were doing so well. I was going to blame you, but it was 100% my fault this time. So fine. It was nobody's fault. It was nobody's fault. So yeah, we are doing Pride episodes for Pride Month. Woohoo! Uh, originally, Serena was going to go first, but that's why our episode uh, are out of order and I'm back to back. But yeah, I just like to think that everybody loves me so much they won't care. <laughs> so... Also, if you couldn't tell until right now, we are supportive allies. So... Pride yes, month. yes, yes. We are very excited that we get to pick some movies that represent the LGBTQ plus community. And yeah, I hope you like the movies that we picked. Sabrina's is going to be traumatizing like everything else that she does. But mine is happy. Also, you're going to be traumatized by um, my very pregnant breathing. <laughs> and I tried so hard. I almost went to the hospital last night to have this baby and my blood pressure dropped. So you guys are still stuck with my breathing for, I don't know, five more weeks because my doctor just said that I could go to 39 weeks instead of, you know, my 36 that was originally. We just keep <laughs> pushing it back because I'm so damn healthy, apparently. Uh, I'd like to think that everybody joins us on this podcast for all your pregnancy stuff. Oh, like last well. week, how you almost, like how you basically threw up on the episode. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, so we do our best to edit these podcasts, but you can't. Don't I, even come here if you're going to have a problem with a very pregnant person breathing into the mic. I just also <laughs> want to say that I literally, there's one episode of Liz's that I literally turned my head away to take every single breath, and it is probably the worst breathing ever. Oh, that would be this episode, ma'am. Oh. So just a heads up for <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much again for supporting us and letting us share some of our favorite LGBTQ plus movies with you. And can I tell you something that is just not anything to do with the conversation we were just having, but like something that's going to royally like piss you off in a good way to amuse me. Okay. Oh, first ask me what's up. Uh, okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So today I went to the movies with Storm because they're doing that $2 movie thing. And so they're playing like actually Storm appropriate movies. And I know before you say anything, I did not look it up on Common Sense before we went because okay. it's a movie. What we movie did you see? Sync. And we've seen it at home. Oh, I love that movie. But yeah, it's a cute movie. But I took him to the movies to see it. And I didn't know this, but they play like the Shake It Up. Well, so we've only seen Sing 2, but they were playing Sing 1. And we hadn't seen it yet. If you're about to talk about Taylor Swift, I don't want it. I'm about to talk about Taylor Swift. So they started seeing Shake It Off in the movie. And I was like, yeah, Taylor Swift. And then Storm like sits up on his knees in in this seat and goes, Shake It Off, Shake It Off. And I was like, do you know this song? He's like, yeah, I love this song. So I have accidentally created a little Swifty. Well, don't worry. We're hanging out more, me and Storm, and I'm going to help him see the air <laughs> in his ways. He likes the Swift and metal music, which both are not yours. Um, No, so if Taylor's... Nope. So you're not doing this to me. <laughs> see, here's the thing. I know that you do this where you try and trap me, and in my one of my other episodes that we've already pre-recorded, I know that I talk about Taylor Swift 
and I had to cut so much of all the things I said so that I can remain impartial someone who people want to listen to because unfortunately nobody cares that Taylor Swift isn't a great person so move on and we'll just shake it off Nope. And talk about the movie. <laughs> Anyways, do you want to talk about a movie <laughs> instead of Taylor Swift? I was just getting you amped up so uh, that we can have an no, actual I conversation. I actually talking about Taylor Swift on the podcast. Anyway. The movie Pride is a British historical comedy drama that was written by Stephen Beresford and directed by Matthew Warker. The movie has a 92% on tomato meter and an 89% audience score, which means that Sabrina absolutely hated this movie. Absolutely. Love the I story. Hate <laughs> hated the movie. I had such a hard time watching this movie. Okay. Well, only because you were distracted. It has nothing to do with the movie itself. It could, well, I it wasn't holding my attention enough. So every character oh God, and every uh, cast member in that movie, I needed to know the background of. Okay. Anyway. So, like Professor Umbridge. Yeah. Okay. I actually liked her in this movie. But fundamentally, I'm supposed to hate her. I talk about that a little bit later in my episode. So hopefully you are not too distracted to partake in my episode about this movie. (laughs) Anyway. I'm caffeinated, so we should be fine. Good. Good and good. And I've already gotten a lot of words out, so. That is true. Hopefully no more tangents. No more tangents. We had a whole hour worth of tangents already. This is our our third start to this episode. (laughs) We're having a hard time. It's okay. This is a great movie. I love this movie. Sabrina is whatever. We all know that her movie taste is awful, so we don't trust her opinion whatsoever. I love my Pride movie. Just throwing it out there. Okay, well, it's fine. That's what makes this podcast good. We don't like the same things. I actually am realizing the more we hang out and do this, we really don't like the same things. I don't even understand how we're still friends. I I don't either, actually. (laughs) We just love fighting each other so much. It's the one thing that holds us together. (laughs) I just think it's like we, I knew we had our differences. I knew we were not the same, but it was just like very surface level. Like, ha, you like that. That's weird. Or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. Like, ew, I think that boy is ugly, but you don't. That's weird. Whatever. But now that we're actually getting in here and having real actual conversations that aren't like superficial or about our kids, (laughs) like I think I'm being like, okay, Wow. Well, or about boys, because we grew up just only talking about boys. That's what I'm saying. I feel like our our life has just like, I don't know. I don't want to make it seem like our friendship was superficial. Like, obviously, we have really deep emotional conversations with each other. But I think we just didn't spend a lot of time being like, this is my opinion about this thing. And now we are. We make a whole show out of it. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, we are not the same in any way. (laughs) But I think that's fun. And there's someone for... Opposites attract. That's true. That is true. And now we can get a mixed bag of people who listen, I guess. Like some people who like certain singers and others who don't. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, moving on. This movie premiered at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival and it was reported to be, quote, hugely popular with preview and festival audiences. It was then released in the U... Yes, ma'am. No, I was just listening. Oh, you tilted your head at me and I was like, okay. This is me intently listening. Thank you. Please keep teaching me. I will. It was released in the UK theaters on September 12th, 2014, with the exception being France, where it was released on September 17th. It was then picked up by CBS Films for distribution rights in the United States and premiered on September 26th during a limited release in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. I Okay, I just had a thought. What? Okay, when we moved into our old house, right? Rupert came with a bunch of stuff and it, he came with this and a, this is, so this is like a silver comb. Also, it has a matching silver mirror. No. I never had that before. No. no, I don't want it. We're moving on. I don't want to hear about your ghost shit, dude. I don't want it. 
I don't want I it. I just thought about it. Like, what? Remember when you just said five seconds ago you were intently listening to me? Yeah, okay, well then. That was a fucking lie. Now shut up. Like, this whole movie. <laughs> well, this movie isn't a lie, but my attention span for this movie. Yes. Anyway, get it together. It's, I think this is more about you, obviously, than the movie itself. <laughs> so. Hold on. I'll just wait until she gets comfortable. It's fine. <laughs> but while we're waiting, totally not me. I bet it's Rupert that brought stuff. Mm, okay. The movie went on to be nominated for many awards and even win a few of them, some of which include Best British Independent Film at the British Indie British. British. <laughs> at the British Tea Independent and Okay, can you please not? Best British Independent Film at the British Independent Film Awards, LGBTQ Film of the Year, and Unsung Film of the Year at the Dorian Awards, as well as Best Film, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Ensemble Cast at the Apollo Awards. While there is some controversy surrounding the film, such as the absence of mentioning Mark Ashton's communist beliefs, or the belief that the 15 certificate, which is a UK 15 and over rating, and subsequent R rating in the US were predominantly issued due to it, the movie containing gay content. Overall, the movie was met with critical acclaim. I was going to say there was nothing within the movie that I would have rated it that high for. No, it was basically like, so UK 15 and over is like, it may contain some sexual references, which that's like mildly fair with the dildo and the magazines and like all that stuff. But like, it's yeah, but not that's like, like rated R worth. We see worse in pg-13 that's what i'm saying so basically people were like yeah it's because of his gay stuff and this like, came out in 2014 right mm -hmm. okay i that yeah. doesn't track right for me so now before we get into the real story behind the movie pride i will read you a short synopsis of the movie that i pulled from google realizing that they share common foes in margaret thasher the police and conservative press london-based gay and lesbian activists lend their support to striking minors in 1984 wales i feel like i know stuff about margaret thatcher but i'm not 100 percent sure you're gonna know stuff about mark do people Thatcher. pee on her i um, wouldn't be surprised if they do okay we're gonna talk i about feel her. like that's the only thing i know about margaret thatcher well there you go for anyone who is interested there is a book that i'm using for this episode because isn't there always a book that i'm using for the episode so this book is connected with the film and it's kind of like a companion to the movie rather than being inspiration for the movie or like so companion other... as in it like it fills in with extra facts type of thing yes okay yes so it's like the movie came out first and then the book and the book just kind of fills in the gaps basically like a whole bunch of people from the real life events that took place it's all coming from their own words the author tim tate he just kind of interviewed everybody and told the story from like their own words and stuff that was that did happen in the movie and stuff that didn't happen in the movie and okay. so forth. The book is called Pride, the unlikely story of the true heroes of the minor strike. So I think I want to jump into this episode with a bit of history leading up to the UK minor strike and the formation of the Lesbians and Gay Support the Minors, LGSM, before I really delve into the history of the individual roles and eventual alliance between the two groups. I think that's fair. Yeah. Therefore, I would assume it only makes sense to lead with the common problem faced by both the minors and the LGSM, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1979 through 1990. That's a really long time. Yeah, she got voted in quite a few times. During this point in time, she led the conservative majority government and ultimately went on to form a right-wing political ideology that became known as Thatcherism. Thatcherism is comparable to what we would refer to in the States as Reaganomics. Essentially, it is an attempt 
to promote low inflation, small state, and free markets through tight control of the money supply, along with privatization and constraint on the labor movements. I don't know what any of that means. And I knew you would say that. In (laughs) other words, greed was king, and there was nothing more important than making money as a private entity. Oh, greed is king? Is that what you just said? Yeah. That was deep. Thank you. Even at the expense of public need. So basically, they just wanted to like privatize things instead. Thatcher, she lowered income taxes on the wealthy, focused on rolling back frontiers of the state, basically meaning reducing the sphere of the government and government activity. Okay. And introduced the privatization of state-owned industry like British Telecom, British Gas, British Airways, and electricity companies. Mm -hmm. So they went from being public entities to private entities, like privately owned. And she advocated for monetarism, which means a controlling of the money supply with high interest rates in an attempt to tame inflation. Ultimately, her ongoing battle with inflation led to mass unemployment. But one of the most notable moves of Thatcher's career for our story was her appointment of Ian McGregor to the head of the National Coal Board in 1983. McGregor had been most notorious for streamlining Britain's national steel industry, where he cut about 95,000 jobs, closed down plants, and turned Britain's steel industry from an estimated 1.6 billion pound loss a year to almost turning a profit. I know that you're wondering, why did I say steel like that? And it is because we <laughs> cut a part where I said it wrong and Sabrina is staring at me, waiting for me to mess up again. <laughs> it's okay. So there's this long, lifelong running joke about me not being able to say words with I-L-L and E-E-Ls. And I can't do it. It's super hard. And Elizabeth messed it up <laughs> the exact same way that I do all the time. And I'm just so proud of her for spending so much time with me that she's messing up her words. No, the it's same because way. I was reading too fast. No, 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 no. It's because you love me so much, you're starting to talk like me. Okay, whatever helps you. Oh, this does. This okay, okay. Does. <laughs> anyway, so the work McGregor had done to turn the steel industry around allowed Thatcher to privatize steel in Britain, and she now had the same hopes for the coal industry. With a similar end goal in mind, McGregor looked to take the same steps with the coal industry that he had taken with the steel industry i only now am realizing how many times i put steel (laughs) in that paragraph you're gonna have to pause before every time you say that word hopefully that is all we only talk about coal from this point forward at least you got that word down (laughs) barely (laughs) let's talk about the national coal board actually what the the okay Do you need to zoom in? No, it's zoomed in. I just can't do anything right today. Now, perfect in my eyes. Thank you. I'm leaving that in. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's talk about what the National Coal Board actually was before we get into the strikes. You're going to leave in all of my compliments and stuff, and everyone's going to think I'm secretly in love with you. I hope they do. (laughs) Sabrina is a simp, and she loves me so much. (laughs) She's obsessed with me. What are you, a simp? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. No, I was about to, but I reached for a decoy (laughs) snack instead. Anyway. I've been told that I simp for Matt Reif. You do. Okay. And me, apparently, according to our podcast edits that I'm in charge of now. (laughs) 
NCB was a statutory corporation that was created to run the national coal mining industry in the UK. This essentially means that the coal industry was moved from being privatized to being publicly owned in the UK, which had been set up under the Coal Industry Nationalization Act of 1946. But Thatcher did the opposite, right? Thatcher took public things she and made them to, private. Yes. And so in, in 1946, this... which was earlier, okay. like decades before. And so this guy is reverting everything. No. So I'm talking about the history of the NCB. Before Thatcher comes along and tries to privatize it again, it was private. Oh, okay. And then the um, Coal Industry Nationalization Act of 1946 publicized it. Okay. Now, I'm kind of speculating because I don't want to go super deep into the history of mining, but... Oh no, they use canaries to survive. Will you not? I don't know what you're saying and we're not getting distracted by it. So don't you bring birds into this. (laughs) Just mute my mic. I should. (laughs) But I think that one of the bigger pushes to move the coal industry from privately owned to publicly owned was because by 1984, which is the time that McGregor was being sent to manage NCB and take it back private, there were only about 173 collieries still operating and the industry appeared to be continuing to decline worldwide. Well, that's when we started having like the green movement and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I literally just said (laughs) I didn't do history on mining. That's fine. That's fine. Take a history class, Sabrina. I was trying to pull I'm just kidding. Off I'm trying to be as rude as possible. <laughs> I was shutting you down. That's my sass for this episode. You're welcome. All right. So jumping back to around 1946 with the passing of the Nationalization Act, the National Union of Mine Workers, aka NUM, NUM. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. NUM or NUM. Right? Yeah. yeah. NUM. Then why did you laugh? <laughs> I'm just, just reading words. I know. It's just so funny to me that people don't think of the acronyms they're what creating. What is NUM? National something of... No, I, I'm not asking. It's oh, not a pop quiz. I thought you were questioning I'm saying, what does NUM mean besides I what know. I said? It's just like a dumb word to name your thing after. It literally stands for... It's an acronym, dude. They, I, they can't change the whole name around so their acronym is I'm better. I'm just saying people should be more aware. It's coming from someone who's initial are SJS. Like, what? I can't even say that. Uh, I think it's because... Okay, so in Zodiac Academy, there's like a ton of acronyms that are stupid. Like, one stands for ass and one's like, when you say well, it, they it's they did that on purpose. I know, but people should be aware of stuff they like that. They were aware and they did that on purpose. <laughs> they were numb. All right. Well, numb came into existence the year before the act... Of the Nationalization Act in 1945. I promise you we're almost done with the history of mining. I know everyone is bored. Please just keep this on. This is why I'm, I'm laughing at words like numb. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to do my job. You're doing a good job. Anyway, the mining industry became a closed shop, meaning that they only hired through the union and any non-members of the union were not eligible for hiring. Numb took part in a total of three national miner strikes in 1972, 1974, and 1984 through 85. I am bringing this up because it's important in understanding some of the portions of the movie, such as the casting of votes and the miners' future alignments with the LGBT rights issues. So that's why I'm telling you this history lesson, brief history lesson of mining. I'm sorry that I just bored everybody, but I promise we're moving on soon. I learned a lot. No, you didn't. No, <laughs> but it's fine. I was trying to make you feel better. It's okay. I want things to make sense as I keep talking. And that's the only reason I felt like it was important to give you a history of who numb was and why they yeah, existed. No, I feel a little numb, but it's okay. Okay. You're not funny. <laughs> you are the only one who thinks that you're funny right now. So 
Within them, there was a level of autonomy at each coal field where there would be a district association, a president, a general secretary, and a headquarters. A national strike would require two-thirds majority vote by its members, but that was almost impossible to achieve most of the time. So each coal mining site had its own little committee. Mm -hmm. They were like different regions, and they all had their own committee with like a president. Okay, so not like each coal site type of thing. No, not necessarily the coal site. I was going to, I was confused because that's a lot of people. Yeah, no, it's just like certain regions. Gotcha. That makes sense because those regions would know what those people need. Mm -hmm. So within each region, a union in that region can call its own strike. Okay. And because there was a variation in the different regions, there was also certain regions that were more militant, like more forceful with their protesting and more forceful with how they did things than other ones. Okay. And this could lead at times to animosity between certain areas. Now, back to our friend. Not our friend, our foe. I apologize. Ian McGregor. Oh, McGregor. Trying to keep up. Yes, sorry. He was attempting to privatize with Margaret Thatcher and close down pits. And this did not fly with one particular union leader of the NUM, Arthur Scargill. Well, because you lose jobs. Yeah. Scargill did not believe in the idea of closing any mining pits if they did not pose a safety risk. He also expressed concern about not only the loss of jobs and livelihood for mining communities if the coal industry was cut down, but also worried about the increase in physical and mental illness, suicide, increased domestic violence, and more broken families if the closures were successful. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In the mind of Scargill, all pits had the potential to turn a profit, and he saw what he believed to be Thatcher's true intention with sending McGregor, weaken the numb and pave the way for privatization. On Thursday, March 1st, 1984, a pit from a small Yorkshire town in Brampton, I believe it was called Cortonwood, received word from the National Coal Board that their colliery was going to close in April. The group of miners met in a hall in Brampton and came to the unanimous vote that they would push back against the closure and ask for the rest of Yorkshire to support them. By March 6th, the miners of the town had officially gone on strike. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I'm just trying to make sure I'm following. So they were told they were going to get sh- get shut down. They asked the community to support them and not shutting it down. Oh, and striking against and, the shutdown. Okay. So they were asking them to strike with them. Okay. I thought that maybe there was like a petition being signed to not oh. shut it no, down. they all just voted to get an agreement among that region that they were going to strike. And did everybody want to strike? Okay. Because obviously the strike is them not showing up to work. Right. If you're unionized and you strike, you still get paid though, right? On your strike days? They were still getting paid something. Okay. So the Cornwood strike was the push that Scargill needed to officially call for a nationwide strike. Something worth noting is that Scargill did not bring this to a national vote before making his declaration. Okay. So the strike was not joined by everyone nationally. Kent, Scotland, the Northeast, Yorkshire, and South Wales joined in on the strike. But Nottinghamshire, which... I'm so sorry, I did not look up how to say these and write them phonetically. I think it's Leicestershire, South Derbyshire, and North Wales carried on working amid the strikes, and this would ultimately lead to bitterness between the two sides. Makes sense. One of the reasons that Scargill was opposed to putting the nationwide strike to vote was because he was concerned that miners who had no threat of losing their jobs to the closure would would vote against the strike in a vote that was specifically intended to help everyone, since the threats of closure were higher or lower depending on the region. Scargill also said that he was concerned that voting on a national strike would conflict with the ability of individual areas to call for their own strikes, and he was hoping that there would be a bit more of a domino effect reaction to the strike versus kind of like what actually happened where some struck, like did strikes and some didn't. Right. 
Unfortunately, the failure to call a vote for a national strike would come back to bite the miners in the butt down the line. The goal of the strikers was to stop production of coal and its transportation to everywhere but the places that it was vitally needed, such as hospitals or nursing homes. However, because this was the same tactic they had used in a strike nearly a decade earlier, both McGregor and Thatcher were prepared for the miners' tactic. Okay. Thatcher had secretly stockpiled supplies, brought in non-unionized haulage firms to carry this coal from storage facilities in case the railways supported the miners, converted power stations to burn heavy fuel oil instead of coal, and this time used the threat of police against the miners. So she knew this was going to happen. Yes. So they knew that by privatizing, the miners were going to go on strike. Right. Because the thing to, I think I talk about this down in my notes later, but the thing to really keep in mind with these miners and these towns that do coal production, it is their only way of life. These whole towns are sustained by this one job. When you're closing down pits, whole towns go unemployed. And they're not coming in and saying, okay, we're going to close these pits, but we're going to give you some other job to do. Right. They're just coming in and closing them, and then these people are unemployed. These towns So they're not even collapse. getting, like, like, a warning of by X date in so many years. Well, yeah, those people got that down. warning in March that the very next month their pit was closed. Okay. So that's no time right. to lose your whole livelihood for a whole town to practically go unemployed. Right. It's crazy. So this is their whole way of life. This is their whole way of making money and supporting their families and coal mining paid good. Yeah. So you're going from having a good paying job that your family can live off of that you guys can go through your day to day without really having to worry about anything to suddenly not having an income or your income options being next to nothing. Right. And these people move to those locations for those jobs. For coal mining. Yeah. Okay. So. I'm comparing it to gold mining because I watch Gold Rush. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, then I'm sure you understand a little bit of what I'm talking about. Probably not, but. Okay, well. <laughs> Despite the fact that there were most often whole mining towns that went on strike, there were other communities, such as the ones that I mentioned, the ones that did not participate in the strike, that did have miners turning up for work regularly. In these cases, Num's, Num would send picketers to these mines, hoping to convince those workers to strike with them. Doing this would draw a police presence to those mines. Okay. Police from outside of the affected counties were bussed in, like we see in the movies, to prevent picketing and strikes, as well as ensure that there was no disruption to the supply lines. Usually, this was when things at the mines tended to get somewhat violent between police and picketers. Both sides participated in aggressive behavior, but the media tended to really exaggerate the violence of the strikers whenever possible to turn the country against the miners. Well, I mean, both groups are going into the situation amped. Yeah. Like, these police officers are getting busted. And probably working each other up. The miners are threatened because there's a huge influx of police officers in their face. Like, it all makes sense. Yeah. So, but of course the media is saying, like, that the miners are the violent ones, but that's not 100%. I mean, that's similar to what we see here. Yeah. Most often, it was a lot of pushing and shoving among the groups, but that would eventually escalate, something I plan to talk about in just a minute. What's important to know right now is that Thatcher's preparations ultimately led to a stalemate between the protesters, the protesting miners and the government. Now, the 1980s was also a time of renewed oppression and hatred for homosexuals. I, like, I'm encompassing everyone, but I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically in a few minutes. Okay. Though homosexuality had been decriminalized in England and Wales in 1967, the oppression and harassment of this group had not 
not wane. In fact, some view the act of 1867, including myself, just to be very clear, <laughs> as merely a step in the right direction. This act removed the threat of imprisonment for gay men in at least limited circumstances. And it did seem to be a little bit safer to come out for many gay men. And in London and other larger cities, openly gay pubs and clubs appeared to do fairly good business and many gay communities had emerged. But the reality was the actual criminalization of homosexuality in the UK did not end until 2013. So even though the act said that you couldn't be criminalized solely because you, you could were be home. arrested, but there were other things that I'm about to talk about that you could be arrested for. Oh, okay. So the 1967 act was the first gay law reform since 1533 when anal sex was made a crime under the Buggery Act of 1533. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. It's just, it's no one's business. Listen, <laughs> this is good. The act was more formally referred to as, quote, an act for the punishment of the vice of buggery. And I want to be very clear, buggery is anal penetration. It's also bestiality, but mostly it's about anal sex. Okay, so that is still legal, right? No, it's to illegal. Be... They're saying it's not legal. The act of 1533 made anal sex illegal. Okay, but at the time of being homosexual, no longer being illegal, anal sex is still illegal. Yes. Okay, so you could be arrested for that. Yes. Okay. So this was passed during the reign of Henry VIII and was the country's first sodomy law. And well, oh, Buggery... Henry VIII? Yeah, in 1533. Okay, I'm the... sure you said 1533, but I did not make the connection until you yeah. said Henry VIII. That's when this act was passed. Because that's that's who we should be basing our yes. moral standings on, is Henry VIII. Yes, and while Buggery is defined as anal penetration under this law, regardless of the participant's gender, don't worry. Everybody rest easy. Blowjobs were still totally legal. Even though technically the whole point of this law was, you know, to stop anal penetration because it was not conductive to procreation. But it specifically says that oral sex is still okay. Yeah, they were like, it's fine. You can give blowjobs. We only care about anal penetration because, yeah, the whole thing, the whole reason this act even came about is because they were trying to say, no, 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 nobody can do anal sex because then you can't have babies. But you can still give blowjobs because why would men give up blowjobs? Because we grow babies in our stomachs and not our uteruses. Well, so they probably swallow- also still thought that they swallowed it and got pregnant, so you never know. Anyway, what I want to be very clear about, though, is this act that was passed, the, you know, Anti-Buggery Act, the Buggery Act of 1533, it was not a minor offense. You didn't just get a little slap on the wrist for doing it. You literally were killed. It was a capital offense that people were executed for up until 1835. Oh my god. I'm sorry for saying anal sex so many times, but I could not help but go down that rabbit hole. Buggery is fun, though. Yeah. That's a fun word to say. I also think buggery is fun. (laughs) Inappropriate. How dare you, Sabrina? (laughs) I was talking about the word specifically. I just like to try and make you as uncomfortable as possible. And now that it's my episode, I get to leave it in, even though you cut everything. Okay. Because this 1967. Mm-hmm. Too busy thinking about buggery over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, let's get back to what is really important. The 1967 decriminalization was only a partial one. Any remaining anti-gay laws at the time were policed even more heavily and aggressively than they had been before. And between 1885 and 2013, nearly 100,000 men were arrested for same-sex acts. These anti-gay laws still included the anal sex law that we were talking about before, but also included what was called 
quote, gross indecency, which was any sexual contact between men, which included touching and kissing. Then there Define was... Define touching. Can you do that? Or is that... Did you not... I is mean, that not information that was... I don't know exactly anything that it would be deemed inappropriate, I'm assuming, mm. by whoever, which is a whole bunch of homophobes. So I think if you just touched each other in a way that seems gay, they probably Like a shoulder something. squeeze. Yeah, who knows? I'm sure they found any reason. Seriously. So yeah, and there was also a law still on the books against soliciting other men in public places with, quote, homosexual intent. Men were literally being arrested for smiling and winking, winking at other men on the street. I thought soliciting was specifically sex work. No, they're just saying if you approach someone with the idea of trying to solicit them for... Any flirtatious action. Yeah, okay. basically, don't be gay. That was the law. They just couldn't say that. Well, I mean, they did say that. Actually, they were not afraid of being absolute fucking homophobes. And they yeah. said really fucking awful things. But that's Ugh. basically what the law One was. of my favorite movies that I'm going to cover later in the year. I don't know why I didn't do it for Pride Month. He created the Turning, Turing Machine, something like that. He was arrested for being homosexual. And I think he was also castrated under oh, no. the old laws. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But I'm going to cover that later. <laughs> <laughs> Much later on the year. All right. Well, my my pride movie is equally as traumatizing, though. So Yeah, I expected nothing less. Yeah. All right. Basically, this de decriminalization just meant that homophobic laws weren't being enforced in some circumstances. But the repression just grew so much worse. For example, police stakeouts in parks and at toilets in an attempt to lure gay men to commit sex offenses often took place. Gay saunas would be raided. And as I mentioned before, gay and bisexual men and occasionally lesbian were arrested well into the 1990s for public displays of affection. I and okay. <laughs> I just... Words are hard when well, people suck. Yeah. Just, I have a, a lot of emotions building yeah. Just to give some perspective on how much more repressed the gay community was during this time, in 1966, the year before the act, about 420 men were convicted of that gross indecency law that I mentioned earlier. 420 in a year? Mm -hmm. Okay. But by 1974, and this is after the act, the annual number of convictions for this was up to 1,711. Bro. Yeah. Also, the age of consent for a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman was 16, but the age of consent between two men had been set for 21 years old. While the 1967 act did... Oh, is that why in the movie yep. she was like 16 for minors, 21 for... Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I thought that was just like a... Nope. A bit she was doing or sash she was throwing. No, it was because technically he was underage when he was 20. But, so wild. Oh, yeah. So while the 1967 act did repeal the ridiculous maximum penalty of life in prison for having anal sex, the punishment for a man over 21 having non-anal sexual relations with a man between the ages of 16 and 21 was increased from two years to five years. So they raised the minimum amount for anyone who is having over the age of 21 having sex with a 16 to 21 year old. So I get the six, like 16 to 18 yes. year old would make sense to me before, because of pedophilia well, 18 purposes. would technically be legal. Okay. Yeah. So younger than 18 yeah. that would make sense but the 18 to 20 you're like those are your college years that's when you're experimenting uh yeah but don't because gay people not okay oh that's right. according to these laws not according to me so 
gay sex was also still prosecutable unless it was done strictly in private without any proof it has ever occurred. If there was any kind of filming or photographing done of two men having sex, they could be prosecuted. Seven men in Bolton were convicted for this in 1998, and two of the seven men received jail terms that were ultimately suspended. Because I don't know released... a lot more about it. Okay. I just, yeah, they let, they let the, they suspended their jail terms. I don't, I didn't want to go into it, um, because that wasn't what my movie was about. It's just another topic for us to get <sighs> hostile about. Yeah, I just think it's important to know that, like, this wasn't a thing that people were saying, like, oh yeah, I mean, this could happen. It was literally happening. Yeah. Uh, it should also be noted that this act was not applicable to those who were in the military. Any gay military personnel could still be jailed until 1994. And it wouldn't be until 2017 that those who came out as gay in the military couldn't lose their job for it. What? Okay. Uh, yeah, because you have all those men. And I wasn't necessarily going to bring this up, but I don't know why, so I am. A lot of, not all straight men, but a good amount of straight men who are homo... Well, all who are homophobic seem to have this complex that they really think that gay men just want them so fucking bad. Like, and that's what it all boils down to. I have to imagine is the people in the military are like, well, no, because I don't want some guy thinking he can get with me. And if you let people be gay, then obviously they're going to try and make me have, like, they're going to want me to have sex with them and they're going to ask me. So what? You're like, allowed to say no. That's what I'm saying. But no, there was like that scene in the movie where the guys were like making a bit about how like they didn't want the gay men to like hit on them or think that they liked them too much and she's yeah. like he literally has turned down better a hundred times probably <laughs> that was my favorite yeah and that's just like the whole attitude unfortunately with like a lot of toxic masculinity is like oh yeah as long as they don't hit on me they won't have you seen yourself sir they will not you're not anyone's type <sighs> anyway drives me nuts yeah i I'm... wish girls would hit on me <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, that's not really fair as a heterosexual person, but I just love compliments as we have established on this podcast, <laughs> especially from hot girls. Now, back to unfortunately talking about Thatcher and other horrible people. Thatcher was not only fiscally right-winged, she was also socially right-winged. She made numerous statements declaring her distaste for the homosexual lifestyle. Those are kind of her words, not really exactly mine, just to be clear. Uh, she held the typical conservative government's, quote, family values, and she used her keynote speech to further whip up massive levels of homophobia already aided by the moral panic around AIDS and HIV at the time by saying in her 1987 Conservative Party conference that, quote, children are being taught to have an inalienable right to be gay. All of those children are being cheated of a sound start in life. Well, I'm sorry. What? Um, sounds like exactly what's going on right now. You can only be straight to have a, a life? What is that? A sound life. A sound life. And you life. know who's responsible for the gay people who are not able to have a sound life? is fucking you. <laughs> so, like, it's your fault that people can't just live peacefully. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I think that one of the reasons why I appreciated being able to talk about this like, whole deal with Ma Margaret Thatcher and the whole right-wing side is just because of everything that's going on right now, especially with people being like, oh, what? Drag queen? reading to our children that's oh it's gonna hurt them and harm them no it's not is that still a thing like i knew yes. that was an issue but i didn't is it no, still, it still currently is a an issue thing. yeah people like throw these big huge huge fits about it shut up if your kid is gay yeah. they're just gay they just like the same sex and it's all good yeah anyway drives me nuts so Thatcher also dismissed a recommendation made that the age of consent for the same for same-sex sexual relationships be reduced from 21 years old to 18, and she also refused to decriminalize homosexuality in Northern Ireland. Wait, so she pushed for no it being 
she, decrease? She did not push for it. Okay, she sorry, said I, she did not. She dismissed any recommendation that that be done, that the age be limits, or lowered from okay. 21 to 18. And she also refused to decriminalize homosexuality in Northern Ireland, which had originally been excluded from the 1967 decision. Because they were their own country at the, that time. I believe so. Still, the prejudice against the gay community had not subsided, and the threat of arrest or, quote, queer bashing, which is when, unfortunately, people beat up gay people in the street was still a like very... Like physically beat? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Like, they recognized them as a gay man, and they would beat them up for fun. What if you were just Metro, dude? Whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that dismissively. I'm saying, yeah, like, like, they didn't, didn't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah okay. they didn't give a fuck. That's not... that. I don't care. But yeah, this was still a very real threat for many gay men. The public attitude remained that gays were, quote, sad, ridiculous, child-molesting, and pathetic individuals, and just overall dangerous people to society. I'm so confused as to why that even became the narrative to begin with. Right, because... Like, like, why does homosexuality fear. equal pedophilia? No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, it's just a way that people fear monger and like create right. things like create something that doesn't exist to scare people. It's very similar to how people behave even now, unfortunately. <sighs> So in 1981, the first case uh, cases of, quote, gay-related immune deficiency known as GRID and later referred to as HIV first appeared in the United States. Mm-hmm. In 1982, 37-year-old Terry Higgins would collapse and die on a London nightclub dance floor and would be one of the first people in the UK to die of an AIDS-related illness. A year after his death, the Terrence Higgins Trust would be founded and would go on to help educate gay men about the threat of HIV and AIDS. The UK still ended the year of 1984 with a recorded 108 cases of AIDS and 46 AIDS-related deaths. Well, we knew nothing about it at that time. No, of course, but nobody was trying to know anything about it either, just to be very clear. (laughs) I'm not saying nobody. There were scientists and people who were, but I'm saying as a general rule, people were just, "Mm, I'll talk about it a little bit more like right now okay i don't know like the social aspect of all that i just know the science aspect right. of it no i know that uh so yeah i'm not saying nobody cared nobody was trying to find yeah. anything obviously there were scientists there were doctors there were people that cared but as a general rule socially people like the newspapers and stuff would run stories all the time referring to aids and hiv as the gay plague religious mm-hmm. entities and some public leaders would suggest that the disease was god's punishment for homosexuality and essentially all of this was brewing a perfect storm in which homophobia was rampant once again and the police and government could quote battle the enemy within and combat the homosexual population in a similar way as they would with the minors and this is happening all under thatcher right yes okay but yeah they were being treated the minors and the gay community were being treated uh essentially the same by everyone just hating on them and this is kind of what led to their unexpected alliance right which is what we see in the movie yes so i'm going to kind of quickly go through some of the major players of lgsm and the minors just so we know who's who okay and also point out who was in the movie and who was not okay i will try to retain this information yeah and it's not really important if you do or don't i just wanted to let everybody know a little bit of a idea about what was kind of fictionalized and what was real okay so mark ashton was the co-founder of lgsm and a british gay rights activist he was also a member of the communist party of great britain and a general secretary of the young communist league he volunteered with the london lesbian and gay switchboard which was an lgbt plus i think that they didn't do q at the time i'm just copying straight from sources so i'm going to say what they said which was lgbt plus okay telephone helpline in the uk after his participation in lgsm he went on to become involved in the 
of Red Wedge Collective, which was a collective of musicians formed in 1985 who attempted to teach youth the policies of the Labor Party leading up to the 1987 election with the hopes of ousting Thatcher. Unfortunately, Ashton's life was cut short with an HIV AIDS diagnosis in 1987. He was admitted to Guy's Hospital on January 30th, 1987 and died 12 days later. Ashton's best friend and co-founder of the LGSM was Mike Jackson, who had been born in Lancashire in 1954 in an old industrial town. He was the one that was secretly Welsh, right? No, he was the other guy with the glasses. Oh, in the beanie. Yeah. Okay. He discusses in the book I read, Tim Tate's book, about how his childhood was an overall good one, at least until his father passed away in 1962 from a car accident. His mother sent him to an all-boys boarding school with the hopes that he w- it would make up for him being brought up in such a, quote, feminine environment and deter him from being gay. Okay. Unfortunately, Jackson was bullied relentlessly in school and at times contemplated suicide before his- finally being withdrawn from the boarding school when one of his mother's friends warned her about the amount of homosexual activity that went on in same-sex boarding schools. Oh, not... Because of the bullying and the... No, 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 because it was like, oh, I'm sending you here so you're not gay. And then people were like, well... And she's like, oh, no. Yeah, it's so messed up. Jackson went okay. on to work in horticulture, and that is eventually what brought him to London at the age of 19. All right, so the two friends formed LGSM, the LGSM group in July of 1984, and they started by collecting using collection buckets at the London Pride Parade. I'm going to tell a little bit more about this later on in detail. Okay. But essentially, their first meeting was with 11 people in attendance and ultimately grew to over 60 people by the end of the minor strike in March of 1985. They had weekly meetings for the majority of the year, raised money, and involved themselves in demonstrations, visits, and conferences. LGSM groups formed in 10 other towns and cities across the UK. Among them was Manchester, Brighton, Southampton, and Lothian. So the money that the LGSM groups raised was primarily from collections at gay pubs and clubs and on the pavement outside of Gaze the Word Bookshop, which I think is such a cute old name. They like briefly show it in the movie. Yeah. Uh, One member of LGSM, Colin Clues, writes about how most of his collecting was done outside the bookshop where the collectors were often badgered by the police. The police would... In front of the gays yeah, word bookshop. Of course, yes. Like, okay. The police would usually threaten to arrest them so they would all just go back inside the bookstore until they left and then come back out once they were gone. He also writes about how others who were in the gay community would suggest that LGSM supporters were naive in supporting who the gay community sometimes referred to as working class homophobes. Basically just supporting the working class. Right. And another member of LGSM named Nicola Field wrote a book called Over the Rainbow Money, Class, and Homophobia in which she details some of her involvement with the LGSM group. She discusses how the group formed and how they began growing so fast and started making regular collections around the gay clubs and pubs. And this really opened up discussions and debates as they went along. I did not read her book. I just read a snippet of it (laughs) where she talks about this. So this is not me being crazy about books. I'm not throwing a whole bunch at you. This is you slacking is what I'm hearing. That was me slacking and not reading a second book for one episode of how dare you (laughs) field writes about how men and women in the mining communities that lgsm would go to would take the opportunity of their visit to talk about issues of sexuality and some even came out as gay or lesbian some of the miners did Mm -hmm. cool yeah so because they were given the opportunity to be themselves exactly and actually have like productive conversations about sexuality and supportive people exactly so some of the other members of lgsm included brett Haran, martin tudsdale ray goodspeed clive bradley nigel young jonathan blake dave lewis gethin roberts paul canning steph 
Tiffany Chambers and Wendy Calden. Now, some major characters from the mining town in South Wales that we see featured in the movie and some who might not have been. Professor Umbridge. Yes, let me talk about it. Let me do my job. I'm really trying. You're doing a good job. Thanks. Unfortunately, from what I could tell, Cliff, the old man, he is my favorite character in this that movie. The, yeah. My favorite one. Anyway, it turns out he probably wasn't a real life person. He was so adorable. Not really. Uh, uh, no, yes, really adorable. Yeah. Not really in the movie. However, we did have David Donovan, who went by Die yeah, yeah. in the movie. He was the leader of the men's union and a member of the strike committee. And his real life counterpart goes by the same name. Anyway, he was also born into, or he was born into a family of miners and had kind of just known that his whole life. Picked up the trade. Hefna Eden. I'm so sorry, everyone. I did not do my normal thing where I spell their names out the right way. I know I've apologized for this before, but I'm feeling real embarrassed. Hafina Hayden was played by Emilda Staunton, a.k.a. Dolores Umbridge. And I couldn't watch her in this movie without picturing her in that pink little outfit. I wanted to hate her so much, but she was so sweet in this yeah, movie. Yeah, she's such a good Good lady. And uh, Dolores Umbridge was my favorite Harry Potter villain. One of them. I don't know. I just liked her. No, I, I like, didn't like, like her, but yeah. you know what I mean? Like her, she did her character really well. Yeah. 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 This is a really good actress. She so. really is. She was a human rights activist and served as secretary of the seven sisters labor party branch and organized a whole bunch of protests. And she was really cool. Good for her. Yeah. This she, is the only time you will ever hear me say that I liked Umbridge. Cyan James was the wife of Martin and is also based on a real person. I'm going to talk about her a little bit because her life turns out to be so fucking cool. Cyan got married to her husband at the age of 16 and had two kids by the age of 20. And she spent most of her time living as a housewife until the strike occurred. During the minor strike, Cyan helped feed over a thousand families a week from nine different centers. Kind of like how we see in the movie. She's the one that like is doing all the... Uh, food stuff in the beginning. The sorting and everything? Yes. Okay. Okay. So kind of at the end of the movie, they talk briefly on screen text about how Cyan's like, like goes on to do things with her life after yeah. the fact. And I just want to talk about that real quick. So she did go on to attend Swansea University and she got her degree in the Welsh language. At university, she was very involved in the students union and was a proud member of their women's group. And then in 2004, she ran as the Labour Party candidate in the Swansea East and was elected in May of 2005 with a majority of 11,249 votes. And she was the first woman to represent Swansea East and only one of eight women members of parliament from Wales. Good for her. Yes. So she was in office from May 5th of 2005 to March 30th of 2015. And she did a whole bunch of work in the government. But it was pretty cool. I also really liked her character. <laughs> but it's just so cool how she was like just a housewife and she did the strike thing. She didn't even finish high school, I don't think. Or whatever the equivalent is over there. I feel like it's different. Yeah. But yeah, and she just was like, mm. No, I'm going to be a badass. And then did it. And that's so cool. All right. Anyway. So Highwell Francis and Christine Powell were two other people in the mining community mm -hmm. that I couldn't really figure out who their counterparts would have been or if they even had any in the movie. Okay. All right. So I'm sure they added in characters. Oh, I mean, they definitely did. Yeah. Okay. So how do these two unexpected groups come to join forces? Well, remember how I mentioned Thatcher's use of police force against miners picketing at some of the coal mines? Say yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> actual questions. I was replaying the scene in my oh, okay. in my Sorry. head. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. Okay, I'm done. Okay, cool. Thanks. Anyway, let's talk about one of the most notorious escalations that occurred at one at one of the Yorkshire mines. 
The Battle of Orgrieve. They gave dun, it a dun, dun, dun. battle name? Yeah, because it was fucked up. Are you ready to hear about it? Oh, so it's not just like pushing along the picket no, line. No, it's bad. So on June 18th, 1984, the police deployed 8,000 officers armed in riot gear and 60 police dogs against 6,000 picketing miners. Oh, this is like full on Game of Thrones battle. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. When picketers attempted to surge forward against the arrival of the first convoy of trucks coming to the coking plant, the police ordered a mounted charge against them in a serious overreaction. The miners responded to this charged by throwing stones and such at the police and at least two or three more mounted advances were ordered against the strikers mounted like on horse mm-hmm. against standing up no horses miners this seems like so much overkill yes it was in the end 51 miners and 72 police were injured at this least no one died i guess yeah This major display of police force against a group of people who were just trying to stand up to an unfair government is truly what caught the attention of the queer community in London because they could relate as gay men receiving constant harassment from the police. I can't even imagine 8,000 horsed policemen. I mean, I don't know that all of them were on horses, but a lot of them were. Yeah. But still, like, that's crazy. Those poor horses, too. I know. I hate... I hate working like people use it. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's not important. <laughs> Jonathan Blake was asked what the gay community had in common with the minors in an article for The Advocate in 2014. And he said, quote, We understood their situation because we were criminalized too. There were a lot of gays under 21 and they were all illegal. If you had sex with someone under 21, the law could break down your door. And what was interesting is actually that the law in the UK was about consenting adult male in private. And in private meant that if you shared a flat with another person and you drag someone back the police could break down your door and arrest everybody in there because it was no longer private so we've come a fair way since then but it's a hell of a long way to go yeah so basically even if you were in the privacy of your own bedroom but if you had a roommate and you brought someone home so it had to be fully secretive like no one could know yes Yes, that's what they're saying. It's like, they just wanted to fucking arrest us. This, that other act, that 1967 act basically did nothing. I'm just saying if this were a law for heterosexuals as well, I would have been arrested a lot in college. Well, obviously, it's not going to be for heterosexuals. Well, I know, but like, that's just, it's unfair. I think this is the first time you ever made yourself sound like a slut on the podcast. Oh, I meant like my roommates. I was with Rupert when we were in college. Whatever. Just let me live. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, whatever. Anyway, I wanted to talk about this. I did watch a YouTube video also for this episode that I was doing by a girl named Georgia Marie. That's a cute name. Yeah. She's a cute little British girl. So cute. Um, And she talks about the strike and the involvement of LGSM with the minor strike. And we had a lot of information already in common with our notes. But one point that she did make in her video, and I wasn't really sure where to put it, but feel it's important to mention, is that most of the information throughout this episode is regarding gay men. That is not to say that lesbians were not also being harassed. It's just to say that being lesbian was not necessarily illegal in the same way as it was to be a gay man. So there was- Is that- Well, okay, sorry. Is that because, like, they just- were there not like lesbian bars and stuff at this time Um, or like just predominantly like gay bars versus lesbian bars i think it was predominantly gay bars but that's i don't know okay what it's saying though is that it wasn't illegal in the same ways to be lesbian as it was to be gay men and here's why because it was mostly a fetish for the straight well that also but 
one hilarious other reason, which is that there was an attempt made at one point by Parliament to make lesbianism illegal in 1921, but it was shot down immediately by the House of Lords out of fear that it would bring attention to the fact that lesbianism was even a thing in the first place, you know. Because women were too dumb to have considered lesbian as an option. Oh, I was thinking it's because the men in the time felt inferior because the woman preferred the company of another woman versus a man. Uh, no, not necessarily. It was more just like, hey, 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 shh. They don't know that you can be lesbian. Oh. They don't know. They're so dumb. They don't know that there's an option to pick women. It's just men. It's, it's just, just guys. It's just wink, wink. Or whatever. So yeah, they were like, no, 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 don't no, Don't put this thought into yeah, their head. Yeah, we're not going to make it illegal because then if we do that, people, these women are going to know that they have that as an option. Men's whole lives is just surrounded by the fear of women realizing they don't need them. That's probably not fair, but <laughs> it's what it feels like in this scenario yeah. specifically. Anyway, thought that was so funny. I love everything about that all the time. Anytime I that for, it's like, I always forget how daft I really am. Yeah, every, oh god, I just anytime that there's a scenario where it's like, hey, 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 don't let women know that they can be with each other and freak out. Like everybody just freaks out. It's fucking hilarious. So what another part of this that I remember reading or hearing about was that they were saying they were worried because when women's husbands went to war, a lot of the time the girl, like the women would come spend time with each other or sleep over with each other. Yeah. And not even in a sexual way. I mean, we did that a hundred times yeah. over. But There's like they're saying movie, like teen movies about sleepovers. <laughs> well, yeah. But they were just saying like, oh, we don't want to create like this big whole thing and make it weird for the women who like want to have each other's like companionship while their husbands are away at war. So I don't know. Okay. Anyway, it was just a weird thing. I feel like they mostly were just like, shh, don't let women know. Also, like, if you were a lesbian, you knew you were a lesbian. Like, that. Yeah. just but because there wasn't a law doesn't change the fact that you know you're a lesbian. Oh, yeah, but I'm just saying some people probably wouldn't have been... Think about these. One of the things I noticed with the talk about these mining towns and stuff like that, like I'm not saying that this is that was necessarily the case at the time, but one of the things that the people in the book talked about with the mining towns and like their areas, they were so secluded and isolated and nobody really talked about sexuality or anything like that. They were so inexperienced. So it's like maybe they had a feeling or maybe like they felt different, but oh, there was no like open discussion. It. Yeah, there were no open discussions about sexuality or like whatever. It was just they were very traditional. So it was just like men married women, they worked in the mines and they had families and this was it. So it was just like one of the benefits to LGSM coming in the first place is because it really opened up for them to be able to discuss sexuality right. and kind of get a better understanding of like all the different people. But anyway, neither here nor there. So getting back to where we were in this story. Busloads of police were being shipped off to abuse the striking miners and the queer community was getting a much needed reprieve from police harassment. However, the more they noticed fewer and fewer police around to harass them and the more instances of the miners being demonized in the press, much like they had been with the HIV and AIDS epidemic, the more an affinity grew for these miners whose lives were being destroyed. Where the queer community had once been the deviants in an otherwise, quote, normal society, the miners were slowly beginning to take their place. Or join them is probably more accurate, but you know what I'm trying to say. Well, take their take their place as an attention. Yes. 
So Mike Jackson says that one day he bumped into Mark Ashton at King's Crossing Station and Mark asked him if he wanted to get some buckets and start collecting money for the miners at the Pride March the following Saturday. And Mike said yes. Most people, like Ray Goodspeed, had already been collecting money for the miners, mostly at their workplaces or their own unions. But they got the idea that maybe this was their opportunity to turn this collection into a movement. Mike Jackson said that things seemed to immediately kick off. People were very generous at the Pride Parade. After all, the miners were about three months into their strike and they and their families desperately needed assistance. A month after the parade, LGSM had its first full inaugural meeting and established a written constitution, all agreeing that gays and lesbians are part of this group and they will raise money for the miners and their families. The LGSM also set up a dedicated bank account and began trying to sort out what to do with the money that they had collected at the Pride March, especially since none of them personally knew any striking miners. Sending the money to none was not an option for LGSM because remember how I mentioned that Arthur Scargill hadn't- Why am I asking all these fucking questions? What did I think I, who did I think I was when I wrote this script? It's like you thought that I wasn't going to ask questions this one episode. I was like, let me ask Sabrina's questions for her so she doesn't ask me questions I don't know the answer to. Anyway, do you remember how I said Arthur Scargill did not send a national strike to vote? Yes, actually, I do, Elizabeth. I do remember that because so I asked glad. questions about that. Okay, whatever. I'm sorry. This was a different Elizabeth who wrote the script. So he didn't do that. We've established multiple times now. I apologize. <laughs> but because no vote was ever hold, the courts deemed Numb to be in the wrong. Therefore, Thatcher and the government were going to at some point be able to sequester the funds of Numb. Wait, I thought unions were separate of the government entirely. Mm -mm. So because they didn't do well, they didn't put it to a vote. So not everybody agreed to go on this strike. So there was a case against that. Like there was a case to be made against them because it wasn't an official strike that everyone agreed to. I don't know all the details of how they or why, okay, but this was, I was some kind say, of loophole. I solely disagree with that because it could have been they were doing an independent strike themselves and other people had just... Well, Arthur Scargill... Did he specifically say... He specifically called it Oh, so he threw strike. himself under the bus. Yes. So there was no... But, sorry. It's so okay. are unions government entities? No, I don't believe so. Okay. But I could be wrong. I did not look that up. It just doesn't make sense to me why... Margaret Thatcher. Uh, maybe. Can. They pretend, well, the mining is a government thing, so maybe it is. Okay. I mean, it is a government owned corporate, like, not corporation, but it's government owned work. So, yes, I have to imagine it is government. Okay, that makes sense. And they have a little bit more of a say in it. So, like, unions are kind of just like a more distinct HR. I don't HR know that all for... unions are that. Right. But I think in this case, because it is a government, they're government employees. Okay. That's where this is coming into play. Or at least contracted by the government. Yes. Okay. Well, all it's right. not contracted because they're not private, it's like a public service. Okay. Yeah. But I do remember a national strike was not voted, voted upon. Yeah, yeah, probably because I said it like 15 times, Biggest I guess. takeaway <laughs> of today's episode. Yes. Um, but anyway, because of that, there was no, because their funds were potentially going to be sequestered, there was no point in sending the money directly to NUM. So a lot of groups like LGSM did what was called twinning, where they basically teamed up with a specific area or town. Well, yeah, region or town that needed assistance. So they would collect funds and then channel their cash directly to the striking miners themselves okay. without any middle people. Clever. So the groups tried to make connections with other mining towns, much like we saw in the movie, but... Also, like we saw in the movie, they were struggling to find a town that would accept their money and acknowledge and respect that they were receiving the money from LGSM. So is that one of the requirements 
It's not that it's a requirement. They just felt like it was a fair ask to say, like, hey, we're doing this for you, but please acknowledge that it's us who's doing it. And don't just right. sweep it under, like, don't just take our money and then pretend like you weren't getting it from our group. So don't accept our money and spew hate at the same time, basically. Exactly. It's okay. just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like it was really fair. I feel like it's fair to, like, we're putting in all this work to try and collect money and donate it to you. The minimum that you can do is acknowledge that we're the group that's giving it to you. Yeah, no, that's Because fair. they acknowledged all the other organizations that were donating to them yeah so just in the movie it was showing that like half of the, the people in the organization accepted that they were gay and the other half didn't and they were still like giving money and food to them yeah so it's not quite like the movie makes it i mean like i'll talk about it in a second okay so at some point someone did realize that they had a connection that lgsm had been looking for which was with highwell francis in dulles south wales this member and highwell francis were both a part of the communist party so highwell received a call from the lgsm in london who had raised all the money that they wanted to give to support the miners and that their only ask was an acknowledgement that the donations came from their group and highwell was totally in agreement. highwell approached die donovan to go pick up the check from LGSM in London. And Dai talks about his experience going to meet the LGSM group for the first time in Tate's book and acknowledges that he had no previous encounters with the queer community before that. (laughs) Most of what Dai knew of the queer community was what he read in the papers or saw on television. But he said that he didn't feel one way or another about going to meet the LGSM group. And the conversations between Dai and the LGSM group were pretty heavily focused on politics and the strike. But Dai really felt that the energy of the LGSM group was matching his own in all of these conversations conversations so he felt really good about them yeah they're just people trying to help other people yeah so even though lgsm had expressed wanting acknowledgement for the donations that had come from their group specifically they hadn't really had any expectations from the town of delays most of the lgsm group members truly expected to have the town tell them to fuck off and that was something that ray goodspeed said that he would not that would not have deterred their support so basically they are saying like yeah i guess if like all of them were just like thanks fuck off now like yeah whatever they were still going to support them because it they wasn't still about doing it. a good thing yeah it was more about supporting and doing the right thing it was just kind of like If we can find someone who's going to acknowledge that we're the ones giving them the money, that's good. Because they also have, a like, they also want to make steps in moving... Their community acceptance as well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's also, like, they... The miners at this point are a community that don't have... They don't have any support, just like the gay community did at that point. But, yeah, no, basically... I mean, they just wanted it to be a two-way street if possible. But if it wasn't, it's not like they were going to be like, all right, well, fuck you guys. Never mind. Right. Anyway, in the early days of their support... the town lgsm like nobody really knew that they existed or that they were the ones making the donations straight away well they had just started the foundation right so that was until mike jackson wrote a letter to fina who was the secretary of the minor support group there the letter that mike jackson sent ended up arriving before highwell had a chance to tell the minor support group about each lgsm so when the letter was received it was read aloud like most of the other support letters at their sunday meeting according to cyan the letter was followed with a lot of tittering and nervous laughter but Highwell claims to not recall these types of responses. Were they associated with a church? I don't know. Okay. So... Either way, what did happen was not necessarily a big pushback against the support of LGSM, but there was a whole bunch of those toxic masculinity inappropriate jokes. You know, some of them were like, well, I guess we'll have to stand with our backs up against the wall. Now they're okay. like stupid shit like that. But overall, like that was inappropriate. So I'm not condoning it. I'm right. just saying it wasn't like, well, we're not taking money from them. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it wasn't a super homophobic reaction, but obviously it wasn't necessarily appropriate either. Right. They were only accepting it because it benefited them. I mean, to a certain degree i think yes 
So Dai did announce to the room that they had already made contact with LGSM. And there was like a little bit of shock to it. But overall, the response was like what I said. And it was kind of what was expected of the group. So toward the end of July 1984, Margaret Thatcher gave an incendiary speech to the Conservative Party members of Parliament in which she referred to the miners as, quote, the enemy within. A statement that fueled the already burning hate for Thatcher that miners were stoking. LGSM went on continuing to collect for the miners, even when the support from the queer community around them wavered. The amount of money varied depending on where they were collecting. And at the start of their collecting, they were harassed and people would come and even take money out of their bucket. And some queer <laughs> newsletters would write opinion pieces on why LGSM was wrong for supporting the miners who had never given the queer community a second thought. Gradually, however, LGSM became more established within London's queer nightlife and community. People started putting a lot of money in the buckets to show solidarity and more publicity came for the LGSM group and the group continued to grow. They were just people trying to help people. What's so wrong about that? Whether well, or... I mean, you have to think of it from the perspective of the LGBTQ community at the time, right? No one is supporting them and the working class was notoriously homophobic. Yeah. So they're just trying to say like, why are you wasting your time helping these people? They've never helped us. That's not necessarily the right attitude to have, but it's an understandable attitude to have, in my opinion. Well, I just think that, like, I mean, they are truly trying to do this out of the goodness of their heart, but, like, it also creates a better reputation for themselves in those communities as well, which just makes their community look even better and, you know, challenges the stigmas that they're facing as well. No, I agree, but you also have these people who have come to the city because they were queer and these same people have experience being beat up by these same people that they're trying to help yeah. every day of their lives That's until fair. they moved away. So it's just like a hard thing where everything you're saying is right, yes, but also I think it's just a hard, it was just a hard line for people to cross and be like okay, these people need help regardless of how they treat yeah. me. Kind of like that story arc that we see in the movie. I've also never been in this situation as well. So. No, of course. And neither have I. I'm just hypothesizing. <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah. Throughout the summer, LGSM took their collections and deposited them into the bank and would send regular checks to the towns they were supporting in South Wales. In early September, Di told the minor support group that he had invited LGSM to come up for the weekend. The same courtesy had been extended to numerous other supporters of other towns, and Di did not want LGSM to be excluded from this opportunity to see where their support was going. The response to the LGSM group coming to town was mixed. Most people said nothing, but others asked a bunch of questions about how they would, quote, handle them coming. And They're just humans. Yeah. And while there's Give them food and shelter. Like what no, else do they sure. need? While there's no open hostility about the idea, Highwell does say that people were just unsure of what to do. Sexuality was not really ever something that had been a part of the town's culture before. Okay, this is what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Okay. So there was a lot of apprehension, especially as the date of the LGSM's arrival in October got closer. There were, of course, negative responses to the arrival of LGSM. For example, one town woman threatened to report the support group to the council because they were all going to quote get AIDS. But for the most part... (laughs) Yeah, but for the most part, the entire village told her to piss off and not talk a whole load of rubbish. Yeah. So on October 26, 1984, three minibuses carrying 27 members of LGSM came to the Dulace Valley from London. They had a bit of a time getting to Dulace, and I won't really get into that because it's not really relevant. But when they finally did get there, they spent a portion of their weekend going to visit the homes and some of the families that they were supporting. And the biggest issue that the LGSM faced with the town people of Dulace was... 
food. What? Yes, food. That was their biggest problem they had the whole weekend. There were a lot of jokes in the movie about how that little old lady had been told that all lesbians were vegetarians. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had to imagine that was kind of a nudge at the actual major concern of this visit because there was a big debate on whether vegetarians, which there were a lot of in the LGSM, should stick to their diet, even if an, a minor was offering their last can of corned beef to them or not. Oh, my goodness. So, in the end, many of the vegetarians were just fed eggs and chips by the town people as an alternative to meat. So that Saturday was the club and dancing event, the one where they were dancing and stuff in the movie. Yeah. Uh, this is where the LGSM group would meet many more of the mining families. Wait, this is the one that happened within the mining community, not the one that they threw? Right, within okay. the mining community. Okay. So the LGSM group worried that they could potentially, that this would potentially make or break their future relationship with the miners of this town. They were a lot different from the miners and more than just their sexuality. They even looked different from them. So they were just a whole mixed bag of concerns about how they were, like what reactions they were going to get. But when the group arrived to the hall, there was a warm welcome of applause and an overall sense of warmth from the miners. That's good. The group enjoyed bingo, dancing, and even a local comedian who made some jokes that evening. Okay. Yeah. Is that what a comedian does? They make well, jokes? okay. Thanks. Don't be rude. <laughs> the tension in the room was basically non-existent, especially between the women in the LGSM group. So it was definitely not what we saw in the movie. No, they had a great time. Everybody okay. was pretty much fine. There was like one point, I didn't write this down, but I should have, where kind of remember how the guy walks up to him and is like so you're one of those guys and then shape puts his hand out and asks to buy him a drink or whatever yeah so there was like a similar thing that one of the that they were talking about in the book where this guy walks up and he's like so are you one of so you're one of those guys i can spot you from a mile away and they were all like really tense like what the fuck he's like you're a teacher aren't you oh. <laughs> like and it was like what, we're just what a, a whole dad bit. joke yeah so it was just like funny and it seems like really low tension good time for everybody yeah Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So LGSM would ultimately co collect around 20,000 pounds through various street collections, raffles, junk sales, and events like their Pits and Perverts event, which you can buy shirts for online. So that's what they actually called it, Pits and Perverts? Yeah. Okay. That event alone, the Pits and Perverts one, raised over 5,000 pounds just by itself. Oh, good. In October of 1984 is when NUM's assets were seized by the government. So did the money, the $5,000, go to numbs no, still no, no, or no, they no. were just distributed no, they were just giving it sh no the money all the money that was being collected for the towns by lgsm was going straight to the town okay they were mailing checks every week to them okay like straight directly to them but i wanted to talk about that same time when they went to go visit those communities is when as they had predicted numbs assets were seized okay this came directly as a result of some miners from derbyshire and nottinghamshire asking the high courts of london to rule the strike illegal due to a lack of national ballot being being held back in September. The judge ruled that the union could not punish minors for working rather than picketing and did not allow for a national ballot to be held. Like they didn't ask for them to go back and try and hold a ballot again and vote it. So they were fine with them not working, not okay with them picketing. So I guess they could get them on trespassing charges or something. Uh, no, they're just like, there's nothing they could really do about them not working. But what they're saying basically is like, you can't punish the people who are working because they were like, I don't know exactly what was being done about people who were working, but there was a lot of hostility towards the men who were still going to work in that the mines. crossing the picketing line? Yes. Okay. So they're saying there's no punishment that can be allowed for anybody who's going to work. But okay. there's not a lot they can really do about the people striking, except for seize the assets of NUM, which they do, but not necessarily because of that. It's because of Arthur Scargill making a comment after that ruling where he says, quote, there is no high court judge going to take away democratic right to deal with internal affairs. We are an independent democratic union. 
Union. And the judge found him in contempt of court and okay. seized their assets. Why does no one learns to just shut their mouth in court? <laughs> yeah, so he was fined a thousand pounds and Num was fined two hundred thousand pounds before their assets were seized. Just they stopped were, talking in court. Yeah. Everyone just stopped talking. So everybody like all the miners that were on strike were making about nine pounds a day and payment stopped. Okay. LGSM kept collecting and the town kept trying to survive despite using that little bit of money I was talking about that Num had been giving them each day. So since it was like a, a huge mining community, was like bartering a thing? I don't know. Okay. I'm sure that there was some to some extent and yeah. people donating and doing everything they could to help people out. So on the bright side, the friendship between LGSM and the townspeople really grew. Cyan writes about coming to visit her friends from the LGSM in London. Like, ah, oh, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie when all yeah. the women show up. Yeah, so that kind of like did happen. Like some of the families they were supporting did come and visit them in London and they were just exposed to like a whole different world than they had ever seen before and that was really cool for them so not only were they being exposed to the queer community in london but they were also getting new ideas about women and feminism so the women of dulaeus took these ideas back home and started up women's groups and started talking about rights and ways to empower themselves and other women in the community good for them yeah so i thought that was really really cool you remember how that newspaper came out and was like giving all this negative publicity about the town getting support from LGSM? Yeah. That never happened. Oh. Yeah. So I feel like that's very like likely to have happened though. I agree. And so I was like kind of surprised when it didn't, but it was just kind of, what is the word when it's like, no. They needed a movie catalyst. I mean, yeah, it, but it was just kind of like a rumor that spread even before the movie, like that that had happened. It just didn't oh, happen. Okay. So what was really going on is the reason why Pits and Perverts was carried out was a result of LGSM's growing popularity within the queer community. And so they took that opportunity to do a fundraiser. Oh, okay. Well, that yeah. makes sense. So it was I like would have done not, the same thing. Yeah. The name Pits and Perverts was meant to act as a tribute for the uh, to the smearing of both the queer community and the minors that regularly appeared during this time and was less to, about any direct insult to LGSM themselves. So Pits was a the derogatory term for coal miners? Oh, no, or? no, no, no. It was just Pits is like where they worked. That's Down what it was in called. the pits type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. And the perverts was just what they called them. The queer community. Like they called them all perverts. So yeah. it was just a play on how they were being smeared. In the yeah. They were making media. light of the situation so that they could control it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't like a big headline thing or anything that they were Super playing Super cute though. No, I would have gone. The shirts are so cool. And they you can do get them look online. really cool. Yeah. All right. The benefit was scheduled for December 10th. And that afternoon, a minibus carried people from Neve Dulles and Upper Swansea Valley to the event. Oh, because I think that the whole notion of the vegetarian concern is super comical as a vegetarian myself. (laughs) There's one bit in the book that I can't help but bring up. Cheyenne talks about how they called LGSM to tell them that they were on their way to the Fallen Angel Club where the event was taking place. And someone mentioned on the call that there was going to be a vegetarian meal waiting for them when they arrived because that's what was at the party. Yeah. And there was like a whole mini panic among all the townspeople over what they were going to eat if there was only vegetarian. (laughs) food and so they stopped and got fish and chips with some of the money that they had brought with them on the trip oh my goodness oh anyway the whole like panic over vegetarian and like they talk so much in the book about that being their big divide with what to (laughs) eat and like food i just think it's hilarious so anyway that was like a little funny bit that happened but i told rupert that after i have margo i'm pretty sure i'm just gonna go full-on vegetarian you should Come and just... join us on the green side. <laughs> <laughs>
that was lame, but still kind of funny. Yeah. It just made me think about it because I have a recipe that I keep meaning to share with you mm-hmm. and then keep forgetting to share it with uh, you. Teddy and I, we have regular arguments about what is me and what is not me. <laughs> he keeps trying to give me things that are me and he'll say like, mom, come on, this doesn't have meat in it. And I'm like, Teddy, that is literally a piece of ham. <laughs> like, it's just funny to have these conversations with him. Yeah. Of like what has meat in it and what doesn't. Storm 100% devoured my steak quesadilla last night and then we had to order an extra side of steak meat oh. because he just devoured it last night. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, Zelda, she likes most meats too. We're smoking meat for her birthday party because she likes meat. I'm so much. excited. Yeah, we're doing like smoked pork and smoked chicken. And then Matt is making me some smoked Brussels sprouts and mushrooms that are so good. Anyway, not important. I just love all the vegetarian conversations and how like really crazy they were about the idea of having to eat vegetarian yeah, food that's or like vice versa. I, I also think it's really comical that they're not the mention of sexuality isn't even the topic of concern. It's food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they mostly talked about like politics and the strikes and then obviously the food concerns. That's not to say they didn't talk about sexuality. They did because obviously right. I didn't read. But that it wasn't part the... like the point of. Content. Oh, yeah, for sure. For Com- sure. No, I get what you're trying to say. Yeah. Anyway, so I didn't read this part of the book because I didn't want to let myself get too distracted because it wasn't really relevant. But there is like a whole chapter or a whole portion of a chapter where they're talking about how all these people could not in the town could not help themselves but ask a whole bunch of questions. (laughs) Like, and you can't. I mean, like, it's not necessarily always appropriate. And there's a time and a place, obviously. But this was kind of closer to when a time and a place was appropriate. And they would have never had the opportunity Mm -hmm. afterwards. Yeah, it was just kind of funny because I just imagine uh, that little old lady just cracks me up and she's my favorite i know i said that about like three people already but yeah. she really probably was my favorite okay back to being serious vegetarian serious Veg- no stop it why do you do that you always make me say something stupid <laughs> it's because that one time you made I me know, do it and i've never done it again and you do it to me every time karma right. is a bitch what is it karma oh is i a thought bitch. you said grandma is a bitch <laughs> i was like what okay Something else that happened in the movie that also happened in real life that I forgot to mention up to this point is that a group of... Are you going to throw up? I was trying not to yawn into the mic. (laughs) I feel like I'm only allowed to throw up on the podcast once and I've already done that. That's true. That's my favorite. (laughs) Okay, back to being serious. Again, this time for real. No more throwing up fakers. Because we're being vegetarian serious. Okay, stop. I'm not going to say it again. It doesn't work twice. Anyway. Right now. A group of... Shut up. (laughs) A group of lesbians did branch off from LGSM and form the Lesbians Against Pit Closures. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know why that's so funny to me. I don't know either. Um, I'm not really going to get into the whole deal of like why they split off or any of those details. But I did just want to mention that that did actually happen. Well, they they were talking about it at the table at one point about one of women's yeah yeah, yeah. Um, like more women representation yeah. and stuff and that's valid i'm not trying to invalidate why they wanted to we just don't have the time and there was a lot of stuff involved and i just didn't get there wasn't a whole book on it well there was like a whole chapter or two about it and i just <laughs> had other things i needed to focus on by february 1985 public attacks on gay men had really started to ramp up out of the fear surrounding the well the fear mongering that was being going on around the aids epidemic i couldn't imagine <sighs> i can't either health minister kenneth lark announced that the government was going to begin detaining patients in hospitals. And though he didn't specify that it was going to be AIDS patients specifically, it was very clear that that's who the intended targets were. How can you detain a... I don't know. They're just sick. 
Like, yeah, but they're sick because they did butt stuff. That's what the whole idea is. There's no proof of that. I agree with you. I'm just letting you <laughs> yeah. know. I feel like that's what the whole idea there was. So stupid. Buggery was illegal. So that's where that attitude. I don't know. Whatever. I can't even pretend to defend or what, any of that. So. Yeah. And it's okay. Whatever. It's okay. I'll, I'll not get on the soapbox today. All right. Uh, as for the miners, their strike was coming up on a year and the government was spreading. That's a long time to live on $9 uh, a week. Well, they were getting support from other places, but yes. Yeah. A, a $9 a day. Oh, okay. 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 Well, not dollars, but nine pounds a day. Yeah. Still not enough. Oh, I agree. $9 doesn't even cover my Starbucks order. <laughs> and you were making fun of me for my $50. Okay. I can't dice. help that Storm likes his coffee too. What do you get him? I get him the vanilla bean frappuccino because you told me that oh, the other yeah. drink it had does. caffeine. It does. Now I, I should have never spoiled that for Storm. <laughs> Poor baby. He was having a good time with his little drinks. Yeah, it's fine. He also like gets a cake pop too. No, I know. I'm just making fun of you. Yeah. I also used to have a $9 order and it was for myself because my chai, la- like, my chai tea latte was so expensive after I added the espresso into it. Yeah. But then this angel of a woman who worked at Starbucks was like, hey, you come here every day and you order this $9 coffee and every time I just feel really bad so can I please tell you a way to order it so you save $2? (laughs) And I said, yes, thank you. You are my lifesaver and now that is the only person in the world I appreciate more than anyone else. Do you just order a dirty chai now? No, a dirty chai is what was costing me $9. It was like $9.20. Oh, then how do you order it? You order it as a, okay, any of my people out here who drink dirty chais, listen up. Go to Starbucks, order a whatever size latte you get iced or hot. Ask for five pumps. If it's a venti, I get five pumps of chai and then I have them make it with oat milk. Oh. It's all in how you say it. It's crazy. Yeah. I, oh God, I owe my life to that girl. <laughs> okay, so... As for the miners, their strike was coming up on one year and the government was spreading a bunch of misinformation about them. The media was portraying the dispute between the miners and the government as more than just a battle with numb, but as an existential fight between good and evil. The British government spent more than four million pounds on newspaper adverts demoralizing the striking miners and their families. They just literally wanted their jobs. They wanted money to feed themselves. How dare they? So LGSM, of course, continued with their collections through the early winter months of 1985 and even purchased the van for the transportation of food and other needs for the town. The van did have the LGSM logo on the side, much like we see in the movie, and it did also cause quite a stir with some of the people around. Not the town, like, locally, but, like, when they went out to go places and stuff. While they were traveling and stuff. How dare they stop and get gas? Uh, Literally so funny that you said that, because uh, the one girl writes, or I think it was Cheyenne writes, Cheyenne writes about how she did stop to get gas, and someone was like, oh, are are you guys just a bunch of lesbians in there? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you come in. So anyway, it was like a whole thing that happened. But she just turned it into a bit. And yeah. Everything was fine. I feel like we would be friends. Uh, yeah, she's so cool. So ultimately the van and uh, the other support provided by the LGSM was crucial in the survival of these miners and their families. However, the strike was becoming more and more unsustainable as time went on. Many miners were beginning to consider just going back to work. And after all, they had been fighting a hard fight against the government that just was not budging. A whole year is a long time. It's a long time. So Especially in- for food instability. Uh-huh. So in the last week of February, le- um, LGSM members traveled back to Dulais Valley. This was going to be the last weekend before the miners 
did end up going back to work, and it had become clear to almost everyone that the strike had been a failure. They had a meeting on Sunday night, and the miners watched as the announcement was made on television that the miners would be returning to work. Yeah. Arthur Scargill had been outvoted by the South Wales Union leadership to return back to work. Scargill made a statement on Sunday, March 3rd, 1985, saying, quote, We face not an employer, but a government, aided and abetted by the judiciary judiciary, the police, and you people in the media. On Monday, March 4th, 1985, the striking miners marched back to work, carrying their banners along with them. The miners had lost. The National Coal Board began closing up the, quote, uneconomic pits in the valleys of the South Wales. A total of nine pits were closed in 1985 alone. Even though the miners had lost their strike, the miners from South Wales, where LGSM had helped, had really formed a true bond and friendship with the LGSM group. However, despite LGSM's relationship with the Dulais Valley, the LGSM had not actually forged a relationship with NUM itself. Just that group. Okay, so NUM was not just localized. NUM was... It's like the full union for everyone. And they only worked with a small group of a few, like three towns. Okay. So LGSM did end up reaching out to NUM despite not having a familiar relationship with them. And Ray Goodspeed suggested that prior to the strike, Arthur Scargill had been pretty dismissive of gay rights because he had also come from a conservative background and had not spent much time considering the queer community. But as I said, they had alliances with the communities of Neath, Dulais, and Upper Swansea Valley. And so... This had convinced LGSM that they could maybe change the union's dismissive stance. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I mean, after all, miners from the communities that they were helping had started wearing their pins, like their badges. That's so stinking cute. Yeah. Without being prompted. Like, they just started wearing them, showing up to the picket lines with those pins on them and everything. So they thought, like, okay, we were able to have this good experience with this town, and they really accepted us. Maybe we can talk the union as a whole into being more accepting of the queer community. LGSM asked the miners to come and march with them at the Pride Parade that June. Mm -hmm. But as the parade got closer, closer, LGSM hadn't been too sure whether or not the miners would actually show up or not. It was really important to LGSM to show the queer community that that the relationship that they had built with the miners was not just one-sided. They wanted it to be genuine because they Mm -hmm. basically made a second family. Exactly. So pretty much everyone was was expecting the miners to not turn up. I mean, trade unions had never even marched in the parades before, so it just made sense that they probably wouldn't come. Yeah. So on the day of the parade, LGSM had set up to begin marching marching in the middle of the parade with uh, with or without the miners. But then, sure enough, the miners showed up. And this is my favorite part of the movie, and it gave me goosebumps. <laughs> I was so happy. Anyway, so they arrived with their huge silk log banner. Sorry, lodge banner. And... Not just the miners from the towns that they had supported, but miners from all over that LGSM had never even met had come along too. So sweet. Mm -hmm. So the crowd was so large that they ended up having to leave the march, which is what we saw in the movie. Yeah. It goes to show you how like just given the opportunity to have open conversations can really change the Mm -hmm. minds and hearts of people. Exactly. So this historic support from the miners at at the Pride March was just the start of a larger movement to pressure the Labor Party into putting gay rights on their agenda for that year's conference. The Labor Party is the opposite of conservative. Okay. By the time that this conference was held in October, there was enough support to ensure that the motion committing the Labor Party to back gay rights would be put to a vote. In the end, the motion won with 600,000 votes. 
Whoa. Yes. I feel like that's a lot of votes. I feel like it is too, but I don't know enough about like the grand like scheme of UK their population. Politics. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, this was only a small step in the right direction for the Labour Party, but it was a big one. Thatcher would go on to form a new attack against the queer community in 1986. Despite there being at least 110 gay men that had died from AIDS, Thatcher and the government refused to spend money on health advice to try and prevent further spread. They blocked grants to help the only HIV and AIDS specific organization and demonized the Labour Party for supporting gay rights so they're just they were just fine with an entire subset mm-hmm. of the population yes. just dying off oh, yeah. because they because disagreed they w- with them <sighs> Yes. And there was this one article that was published. I didn't put it in here, but I, you do this every time you say something. And then I'm like, well, actually, I remember this thing I read. Yeah. So there was this one article that was being published in the paper where this guy, I think it was an American psychologist. Anyway, they quoted him where he was basically like, I don't know why we're all pussyfooting around. Just kill them all. Talking about all the gay people. Just let it run rampant. And- no, just literally kill them. Why are we like not just oh. killing them all? Just get rid of them. Like yeah. exterminate them. Basically. That's disgusting. Yeah. So, no, people did not care. They did not care if gay men were dying. Could not care less. Okay, well, as someone who formerly did HIV research, I can tell you that this podcast does care. No, no, definitely. (laughs) Even if we didn't do research, we care very much. I just am saying, like, it is baffling to me how much people were just like, sucks to be them, they shouldn't be gay. And that was that. Like, that was their whole fucking attitude. And people had no concept of HIV and that it wasn't just a virus being spread among gay people. (sighs) Anyway infuriating and whether okay whatever do you have a thing you want to say well i just don't think it's fair they just happen to be gay they happen to contract aids just because their sexuality doesn't like that doesn't mean they don't deserve to live oh i agree that doesn't mean that you can just ignore the consequences of not helping these people and it doesn't it's not always spread by buggery (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not always spread by buggery (laughs) i just no i i agree with you Oh, don't cry. I'm so sorry. I'm so mad. I knew this was going to happen at some point. Eventually, you were going to cry on the podcast. <laughs> I'm just so mad. I understand. And words are hard, and I just want to cry. Okay, this well, makes me so I'm angry. I'm going to tell you some things that are not a lot better, but okay. maybe mildly. Oh, I'm sorry for making cry. you cry. It's okay. I am going to leave it in, so I'm sorry for that too. It's fine. I just care so much and it makes me so angry. Okay, so in 1987, the conservatives won the general... It doesn't get better first. It gets worse or it gets not good first and then it gets a little better. That's fine. I mean, it's not fine. It's not fine, but I'm just giving you a heads up. So I think I'm done crying now. It's okay. (laughs) In 1987, the conservatives won the general election and introduced a new law that made it illegal for councils to, quote, intentionally promote homosexuality or publish materials with the intention of promoting homosexuality. Thatcher went on to push back against plans to make explicit public health warnings against AIDS as late as December of that year. So basically, don't publish anything that makes it seem like it's okay to be gay. And that includes educating people about AIDS and warning them about AIDS and how it's spread or what whatever how to be safe against aids because then that's promoting being gay so she fucking sucks and we hate her by this point how dare they want to protect themselves how dare they want to live how dare they even not wanting it why you have a responsibility as a leader of a country it's a public health issue exactly whether they're gay or not it's a public health issue yes 
So, unfortunately, mm. by this point, 293 men had died of AIDS. And this is in the UK, to be very explicit. Yeah. One of whom had been LGSM founder Mark Ashton. As I mentioned earlier, he also died of AIDS. Yeah. So, it would not be until 1990. 1990- this is why sex education is important. It is. A different episode, though. <laughs> so, this is it. In 1997, the Labor Party took over and they spoke on a commitment to equal rights, similar to the one that LGSM had been fighting for. And that commitment would start to be realized at this time and moving forward. Good. Obviously, things did not really turn around for them, like for the queer community until later on. Like I said Definitely not as quickly as we would have liked to have seen it. Definitely not. But at least in 1997, some forward progress was beginning to start. So that is good. Yeah. And that is the story of LGSM and the mining community and how these two unexpected groups came together to fight against a shitty government the end for everyone who is still with me i know i lost a lot of you guys during mining history (laughs) at least everybody didn't hear me cry everybody will hear you cry (laughs) because you crying was so adorable it just makes me so angry like i understand i don't care if you disagree with people fine everybody's entitled to their own opinion but just be a human and love other humans the end the end all right Well, we're going to probably go ahead and sign off on that note because I think it's a good one. If you are interested in following us on social media, we're at the Based On Podcast everywhere and join us next week when we talk about a whole new movie. Is there anything you want to say, Sabrina? No. Okay. Sabrina's crying. (laughs) So (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) Hefna Hedden. He didn't Hefna their part in the minor strike. <laughs> I'm just going to start that whole sentence over. We both fucked it up. That scared me. <laughs> I just spat on my food. I don't know what's oh happening. Margaret Thatcher was prime min- <laughs> with a similar I'm scared of the dark. <laughs>